Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. COP26 showed an urgent need to accelerate climate actions, some related to forestry, biomass and biodiversity. Is biomass energy a threat or a solution to meet the climate crisis? That's a question for the guest in Transformers of today. Anders Egelrud, the CEO of Stockholm Exegy, and Charles Secret, a climate campaigner. Both have long experience in climate change policies and actions. Charles is the co-founder and campaigner for the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill going through the UK Parliament now. He has been a special advisor on climate, environment and sustainability for the former mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, and a member of the UK government's roundtable and commission for sustainable development for 10 years, advising conservative and labor administrations. He was the executive director of Friends of the Earth in the UK for 10 years. Anders Segelu has been the CEO of Stockholm Exegy since 2007, he transformed Stockholm Exegy into the leading district heating company in the Nordics. Exegy today is 50% owned by the city of Stockholm and 50% by a consortium of institutional investors from pension and insurance sectors. Stockholm Exegy's goal is to become climate positive 2025. In our program today, Charles and Anders will discuss sustainability in the energy, renewables and forestry and bioenergy sectors, as well as carbon dioxide capture and storage. Welcome, Anders and Charles. So let's start with Anders. And uh, can you give the listener a bit of insight in the energy mix of district heating system, and uh, particularly in Stockholm, but also maybe in other uh, district heating system in Sweden? Today, many, many district heating systems in Sweden have a level of renewables or recovered energy above 99%. Stockholm Exergy is not an exception from that. We have more than 99% based on renewable or recovered energy. We have also been looking quite heavily into how is the forest used in Sweden. And we can see that we have more forest in Sweden today than we have for 100 years ago. We have much more than for 100 years ago. And every year, the forest is growing more than we are using from the forest in Sweden. And I think that's also one prerequisite in order to also see that the biogenic carbon is uh, recycled. So what we, we are aiming for to supporting uh, Stockholm in their climate uh, actions is actually to adapt and, and invest in a full-scale carbon and capture plant in, on the largest combined heat and power plant, which will mean that we will, we will actually capture more than 800,000 of biogenic carbon. Then we can actually liquefy that carbon, we can transport it, and we can actually store it on the seabed, in the rock on the seabed, in the northern sea, and it will be permanent, the permanence there will be for thousands and thousands of years. And it will be mineralized after that time. We can see that we need to 
have a journey where we both reduce and remove. And when I'm looking at the city of Stockholm's ambitions to be fossil free 2040, it's extremely difficult. In some parts of the city, it's more or less really hard to reduce down to zero. And in order to be net zero, then we also need, need to understand that we most likely need also have need to have removal from from industries which have the possibilities. The district heating sector in Sweden, together with the forest industry in Sweden, or have the potentials to reduce carbon from the atmosphere with more than 30 million tons annually, without utilizing more biomass. Uh, and that is, is an advantage and an opportunity we can't miss. So what we are aiming for is actually to start to create a new industry where we can actually capture carbon, which are biogenic, and from, from that perspective then supporting cities, companies in the Stockholm area, primarily to reach their net zero target. Thank you very much, Anders. Let's uh, ask Charles to do an, an introduction before we start the dialogue. And uh, Charles, the floor is yours. Thanks, Kai, and thanks, Anders, uh, for that very interesting introduction. Well, I think that forests and biomass have a very important role to play in tackling both the nature and the climate crisis. And done properly, and I'm going to explain what I mean by properly, um, it can be very positive for nature, for climate, for the economy, for people. But all too often it's forest management and land use management is done badly. Now, at a city scale, biomass use, um, certainly the closed loop economy, the circular economy uh, that Anders was beginning to describe is an absolutely essential part of the way forward. And I know from my own experience in, in Stockholm and in Sweden, so I'm a little familiar, one foot in both countries, as it were, uh, the suburb of Hammersby Hörstad is a fantastic example of setting a circular economy in uh, progress across all sectors, energy, transport, waste management, resource use, fuels, power, buildings, water, it's great. And I wish we had stuff like that going on in this country. 10, 12 years ago, I worked as an advisor to the then mayor of London, and we tried to replicate some of that approach in London, but we didn't really succeed. It was a piecemeal effort and we're nowhere near there now. And one of the reasons for that was that there was no supporting overall strategy from national government. So we didn't in, have in place the right regulations or tax incentives and penalties like Anders described, or the right government spend, uh, not even procurement driving that type of green economy, let alone things like getting carbon prices right or, or carbon taxation. Uh, or green bonds to drive that sort of green investment. And that's all stuff that we need that there's much more of in Sweden than there is in Britain.
it's also important of getting forestry and the biomass economy right is that the absolute priority is whatever we do is it has to be about enforcing the Paris Agreement under the Climate Change Convention and making sure that our economies stay within a 1.5 degree centigrade uh, heating above pre-industrial levels, but also that we protect the most important areas for biodiversity uh, in line with the global leaders pledge for nature, not just stopping the destruction of critical uh, ecosystems by 2030, but by reversing the decline and regenerating nature. And that's what one would hope would happen in COP15, the Biodiversity Convention meeting coming up in China uh, in uh, the end of April, beginning of May, as a follow-on for COP26. And of all those biodiversity hotspots, the most important to protect and not destroy for any reason are the terrestrial sinks and biodiversity hotspots. Conservation International, an American NGO, has just produced a global map of these most important areas that cover uh, forests and peatlands um, in Sweden and in Scotland, in our country, in the tropics, in Canada, in North America, in Russia, and actually across most of Sweden and Scandinavia. But three quarters of those critical places are unprotected at the moment, and they need to be protected. You also need natural climate solutions. Carbon capture and storage, maybe. I think that there's a big debate still to be had. You may be doing it right in Sweden. We may have the potential to do it in Britain, but we're definitely not doing it correctly here at the moment. And the Drax power station, this massive biomass fuel power station, is a classic example of everything that's wrong. The final thing that I'd like to say is we need vision. We need a big picture. And if we're standing on the moon, looking down on our planet about how things could be, then I definitely feel that a plant-based biomass economy is an essential. And what do I mean by that? Because I know that's very controversial. What I mean is that it has the potential to totally replace the fossil fuel economy. I mean, what is fossil fuel but dead carbon? What is biomass and plants but living carbon? Well, with living carbon, you have the opportunity to create that closed circuit that you don't have, or with much greater difficulty, expense, and technological problems with the uh, fossil fuel economy. But cellulose and woody materials produce everything that the fossil fuel economy does. Fuels, power, plastics, chemicals, packaging, even timber that can be uh, processed in the right way, can replace concrete and steel, even glass. It's incredible material, but it's not being done in the right way or only just being begun the right way. So we need incentives to drive the growth of that type of green economy. And that means we need a different land use strategy. The four principles of that land use strategy, if I can finish on these opening statements. First of all, core nature has to be totally protected for wildlife reasons, for ecotourism, and for genetical, genetic materials. So you can still get an economic benefit out of it. Around those core nature protected areas, 
one needs buffer zones of agroforestry and of perhaps selective felling, but very carefully uh, uh, done. And then degraded land. There's so much degraded land everywhere, particularly in the tropics. And that's where the right sort of plantations should be made and for forest regeneration. And then finally, looking at cattle and cropland because plants is not just about the economy we've been talking about, but also the food economy. And so much of our food economy and our diet and eating habits goes totally against protecting biodiversity and keeping within the Paris Agreement. So we need incentives to move over to a more vegetarian, more vegan, far less meat-oriented diet. And that will free up huge amounts of land and reduce our carbon emissions because growing food for animals is very carbon and chemical intensive. And so that's the sort of you know, future that I hope my kid and grandchildren grow up in. And I think that we can get there. And I think there's a lot of overlap, but some disagreement between what uh, Anders and I have uh, said so far. There are always uh, questions on how you are utilizing resources. We have three pillars which we have based our enterprise on. The first one is resource efficiency. Resource efficiency, that doesn't mean that you should utilize something just and burn it in a heat-only boiler, for instance. Instead, you should use it in a combined heat and power plant. So you are you utilizing more or less 100% of the energy or actually more than 100% of the energy since you can utilize it in different, in different levels. The highest level of energy or exergy, which, we are, from, which comes from our name then, <laughs> is electricity. But if you first produce electricity in a combined heat and power plant and then utilize the steam for actually heating up the buildings, then you are utilizing the energies in several steps. The exergy is used and you're using more or less 100% of the resources. So I, I understand when Charles saying is that Drex might not be the best example of how you should utilize biomass because you're only producing power and you're actually letting out 60% of the energy in the atmosphere. Uh, and you are not using local biofuel either, which has, uh, are, are things which should otherwise just be left in the forest. So I think that's, this needs to be carefully handled. And that's why I don't think that combined heat and power based on biomass should be the solution in every country, but it should be a part of the solution in countries like Sweden, Finland, Norway, definitely. And those who have a forestry which uh, is possible to run in a sustainable way. We have also tried to do district heating uh, abroad, for instance, in UK. It's very difficult to build up the infrastructure once you have the city there. Uh, and, and one thing which the Swedish system and the Nordic system has actually built up is an infrastructure which was built at the same time as the city was growing. And that is a huge advantage. Uh, then we can utilize many different resources. And when new industries is coming, like data centers, which use a lot of electricity, and letting out all the heat, we can utilize the heat into the district heating system. We can utilize the excess heat from a grocery store as well, or other industries which, which can be placed in, an, in a city. So I think 
resource efficient in a, is a cornerstone, which needs to go hand in hand, which is the first pillar I, I talked about. Climate efficiency is the second one and renewable the third one. All these three has been three important pillars for us in our journey towards phasing out fossil fuels, reducing, and then see what are the opportunities to remove and create negative emissions. So it's not only one thing you need to take into account. And I, uh, when I listened to you, Charles, that what you are saying also, we need to have biodiversity. We need to have mitigated climate change. We need to create a bioeconomy. Uh, and one thing I think is, is necessary that we, we both can have carbon capture and storage in the future, which I can, can see ahead of us. We can have carbon capture and utilization, creating new products with the carbon, which we are taking from biogenic material and together with example, hydrogen from renewable solar or wind power, we can create new products, new fuels, which are based on biofuel. So absolutely, we need to have a vision about where can we be 20, 40, 50 years from now. Go to have 40 or 50 years. Um, and, and that's why we have to have this accelerated development of this type of green economy, um, of which biomass can play such an important part. Uh, you, know, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that we're agreeing on. Um, it, the one thing we don't have a lot of time on is is uh, is time itself. And through your three principles, and maybe you sort of added it at the end, there has to be a fourth. And the fourth principle is protecting essential biodiversity and critical ecosystems like old growth forests and peatlands. And that's something that we have to do in our country. Um, and we're, you know, so most of our peat is up in Scotland. And one of the worst things that we can do from a biomass economy and a climate economy point of view is to start planting trees all over it. We don't want to do that. And what Sweden needs to do is to look to its peatlands and its high biodiversity forests and protect them. But we've also got a model of energy generation that's based on big, large-scale, centralized production. So offshore wind, nuclear, and gas. And Drax is an example of how our country, our government wants to move bio, uh, biomass energy production into that same simplified, centralized model. And that's not the solution. The solution is something decentralized, local networks of the sort that you talk about and that Hammersby Hurstard exemplifies, where one's putting the priority and the money, private and public money investment, into renewables, into energy efficiency in buildings, into closed loop systems, certainly into combined heat and power and district heating, and local chip burning. Yes, if it's okay using offcuts and waste wood, but not like that Drax. Drax imports all its chips derived from forests in Europe, in Latvia, for example, or in Canada, or in the southwest uh, of America, where natural old growth forests, really important for biodiversity, are being clear cut 
for these chips and then transported across Europe or across the Atlantic, more emissions, more pollution, more cost, more inefficiency. And the only reason that Drax is in business, why it turns a profit, is because it gets 2.3 million pounds of government subsidy every single day. You take that subsidy away and Drax operates at a loss. So that's the type of, uh, of biomass burning that I am dead against. And I don't hear you advocating that, so that's great. There can be uh, ways of, of using biomass in a correct way. There can be ways of, of using biomass in a wrong way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we need to have this four, uh, if, you, if you call it four, di uh, four dimension, but definitely these three dimensions or pillars, resource efficiency, climate efficiency, and renewables. When I look into a peat, the, the peat issue in Sweden, for instance, and the biodiversity, and I have had the opportunity also to look into the state-owned companies via Skogs, how they are operating. They are the largest forest owner in Sweden. And I must say that that strat strategic view and, and agenda they have that will save a lot of peatland, that will save a lot of biodiversity. And I must say, I'm, I'm impressed also how we are introducing artificial intelligence and other things just to save the right areas and also protect many important um, parts of the forest, uh, which, which I think is, is, is very important. But I can also say that uh, I have more understanding for the debate you have in the UK than I sometimes have from the debate in Sweden. Uh, because I also traveling in Sweden, I can see those huge areas which we, we actually, the last 10, 15 years, have saved for these kind of purposes and will save and will be a part uh, of, I think, a sustainable future uh, use of the biomass. But it's a, it's a continuous development. Coming back to district heating, I think one thing um, which, which I will emphasize, Hammarby Sjöstad is built on district heating. Actually, Hammarby Sjöstad is the example of district heating in Sweden. Hammarby Sjöstad utilizes excess heat from the sewage water, which comes from the district heating system. Hammarby Sjöstad used the excess heat from the waste produced in Hammarby Sjöstad, produced in the combined heat and power plant in Högdalen. Hammarby Sjöstad used the water uh, which are treated in, in the Stockholm Vattens uh, facilities where we are utilizing the SX heat from. So it's a, it's a circular economy which you can create with the infrastructure you have in district heating, district cooling and, and uh, water system in a city. And I think that the infrastructure we should be very, very proud of having. And we should actually see that as some really important innovation base which can actually uh, be utilized for being really sustainable in the future. But then it's about sharing energy. It's, a, it's about sharing energy in a large community like the whole Stockholm. Then you can see we are sharing, in whole Stockholm, we are sharing energy in a way which will be sustainable. Uh, and what I, I see signs of now is actually that we are trying to see that decentralized energy actually is harming the possibilities to create a Stockholm which actually can be climate positive. Because if you are thinking that you are installing a heat pump in a real estate building using green electricity, you can never be climate positive. You most likely not can be even net zero. So 
it's it's a balance also of how how can you actually connect large enough system like a Stockholm region and actually see how can we build a sustainable platform in that region. And you both need to have electricity capacity enough. You both have the infrastructure there and you need to use the resources which you have in the city. But, but, but wasn't I saying exactly that? Wasn't I agreeing with you? I mean, I'm I, saying about, you know, what a fantastic model Hammersby Hurstard was. And district heating in exactly the way that you've described it in this uh, cross-sectoral uh, cooperative way is a very important part of what I'm describing as a decentralized model. Okay. And that's what we, one of the things, exactly that type of district heating uh, initiative that we tried to introduce and, uh, and different parts of the country are trying to do that in this country, but not doing it well enough. And partly it's because of the way that our municipalities uh, and our uh, leaders think, the type of strategies that they have, what they think is possible, what they're experienced with. And partly it's because we don't have a national policy framework that supports that evolution of the way an energy economy as part of a closed loop economy works. And so again, I think that, you know, what you're saying and what I'm saying is the same thing. You're saying we've got it in Sweden. I'm saying we want it in Britain and we don't have it yet. Do we need to reframe the debate and the dialogue around uh, the, the forest? And, and, and mm. I do understand that it must be different perspective when you compare two countries like Sweden and, and UK, when, when Sweden has a, a 28 million hectare of forest, 70% of the whole country is forest, and UK has 13% of its land for forest. And um, it must be different perspectives uh, on, on the debate of how different countries have different opportunity to find their way to develop the strategies. But what with these two realities, do we need to reframe the dialogue to, to come to a conclusion that is more built on a consensus to meet the climate targets? Well, I think that, you know, obviously you've got to have national solutions to national opportunities as well as blocks. And similarly, at a local level, I mean, in my country, um, cities vary. Cities are different to villages. Uh, urban areas are different to suburban areas, are different to rural areas. Um, uh, you know, in different parts of the geography of the country, you have different opportunities for different types of renewables for example, you know, that can't be replicated everywhere at a local level or indeed at a national level. But what I think that everyone has to do globally, whatever one's national push is or making the most of those national opportunities to understand what we have to do globally and what we have to do globally. And every country has to contribute towards this and northern developed rich countries more so to help poorer so-called southern countries go the same route, is we have to manage our economies so we protect our most important biodiversity and regenerate nature. And secondly, that we keep within 
a 1.5 degree centigrade average atmospheric warming, heating above pre-industrial levels. And we're already nearly at 1.2 globally. So definitely different opportunities, but we've got the same targets. And it's those targets and core principles that need to be the same. And part of the cooperation is the rich, the wealthy, the well-off within countries, as well as between countries, need to help those that find it most difficult to make the transition, that have the least capacity, the least resources, the least money, the least technology. And of course, that's all um, part of the Climate Change Convention, of exactly those principles of cooperation and technical and financial assistance. If I then look at it from a Nordic perspective, I can clearly see that we can contribute to the climate mitigation by utilizing resources we have in a, in a sustainable way. Uh, utilizing the district heating sector, which we now have, which are a vital part of the energy transition and making it possible to also electrify other types of industries in Sweden, uh, creating fossil free steel, creating carbon sinks. And that something which we need to have in the future if we should reach a circular economy. Uh, and then, then I, I think it, it's, uh, it's crucial to have also a Europe, on a European level uh, a structure and incentives which actually take into account that there are differences between these different countries if they are in the south or if in the, are in the north and also accepting that utilize every tool we have because we can't wait to mitigate this situation we are in. In Stockholm at the present moment, we have a temperature increase which are close to one degree, definitely. If I go to the northern part where I come from, it's one more than 1.5 already. Uh, and that's the situation and that's why we need to make take action at now and we can't wait and we can't afford to have a conflict be between reducing emission and removing emission. But we need to have a common platform where we are talking about how can we do it in the most sustainable way now? And yeah. how can we utilize the different parts uh, or op options we have in different countries? I completely agree with you. I think we're saying the same thing. Um, we're, 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 we're echoing each other in a very positive and good way. And I also completely agree with you that, how can I put this? Uh, industrialists and environmentalists standing on opposite side of the fence, shouting at each other, which we're not doing, is no good. That, that polarization of debate that we referred to earlier is no good. Um, one of the things that we haven't talked about much is carbon capture and storage. Now, personally, I think, and not a lot of environmentalists in my country and I know in Sweden and uh, across Europe and America and you know, all sorts of places, don't think that carbon capture and storage is something that uh, we should uh, promote and go ahead with. Why do people think that? Because they're really scared that this is just going to be used as an excuse not to change emissions, a reduction, and not to drive rapid emission reductions. Now, you didn't say that, but yeah. that's what environmentalists are afraid of. They think, oh my God, here we go. Big business, big government, just coming up with another technological solution or 
an apparent technological solution that actually isn't, that's avoiding a major part of the problem, which is emission reductions. And there are still doubts, I mean, maybe not in Sweden, but there are definitely doubts in this country about the, uh, the efficacy of that technology and how it can be done safely. Personally, I think that it is inevitability. And I think that it is, and I think it's inevitability anywhere, everywhere, because we've got so close to breaching essential thresholds in the bio biosphere as a result of climate heating. We've got to find a way of demonstrating that that technology is not going to be an excuse not to do all these other things. And we've got to be able to demonstrate that it works, it's viable, and that there really is a place, not just to capture the carbon to be able to use again, because carbon is a very valuable resource, as you've said, but also when we do store it, that we're super, super confident that it's going to be in geologically secure reservoirs that won't leak, you know, during the transportation, for example, um, and that won't um, uh, leak uh, after it's stored there, that those places can be properly capped and sealed. Now, for me, those are technical problems that can be addressed and they do need to be addressed, but that means that both the, the fears of one side have to be positively addressed just as much as the opportunities being promoted by, at the moment, the other side uh, are realized uh, in, a, in a proper way. Yes, re regarding the carbon capture and storage, I think that it's, it's I fully agree with you, Charles, that there are a discussion about technology-wise, is it an excuse to, re to not reducing fossil fuels? Uh, and I would be a strong advocate of, no, it isn't. We are the example of that. We have reduced all the fossil fuels already. We want to do more. We can do it without using more resources also. also. And I think that's, that's a good example. And that is these kind of examples we should strive for and have up uh, in, in full demonstrations that we can clearly see examples of it's possible to do it in a way which are secure from a storage point of view, transportation's point of view, and also are utilizing the resources in a very resource efficient and wise way. Uh, and I, I definitely think when I, I have now been working with this carbon capture for, for many years uh, in, in our company, that technology-wise we can solve it, but I don't think that that's the golden key which will solve everything. Because I know that we need to reduce the fossil fuels everywhere globally. And that is so important that we do it now fast, but we need to remove it at the same time. I'm definitely convinced with that if you should reach the 1.5 degree target setting in, in Paris. I, I think that this dialogue with you, Charles, has been extremely helpful for me to also uh, see that uh, there is uh, a sustainable way forward where we both can remove, we can use the carbon in a wise way, uh, we can reduce and have the focus on reducing energy efficiencies way well, and also we need to include other sectors which are, you were talking about initially, uh, food sector, how we are using agriculture, and other, other sectors need to be included in this as well. And that's 
holistic view from time to time I miss. Uh, and that's what we try to actually implement in Sweden now, at least to have it a holistic view on the whole energy sector where district heating, combined heat and power, sustainable use of waste, biomass is one part of the transition and making the transition much more fast. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely yeah. agree with you. And I think this is where, you know, this is where this conversation about the possibilities and the urgency of overcoming the barriers. And one of those barriers is, as we've both talked about, the polarities, uh, you know, uh, people pretending that they're on opposite sides of the fence when actually we're all human beings and we've got to solve this all together. Thank you both. Uh, it was a great pleasure to have you two in the program Transformers. Hopefully we know that we can see how we can tackle some of these dilemmas and moving forward in the transition of our society and to meet the Paris Agreement targets. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more, visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.